So I had one mask when I was at church. I had one mask when I was at school. I had one mask when I was on the football field. And so this abuse went on for eight years and it, um, it just got worse and worse towards the end. And um, he had tried to kill me and my brother numerous times. I, I kind of felt like Cinderella, you know, where every day I got to go to the ball and the ball was going to work because I had freedom, you know, and um, I lived vicariously through my customers because no one knew what my brother and I had to experience when we went back to to that apartment. And um, in June of 1999, it was a Monday night, um, we got home and... Hey, welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. Hey, Jim. Hi, Ray. Today Tell us about our guest a, tonight. Today we have a special guest with us, a public speaker and prison reform advocate, David Garlock. David, it's a pleasure having you on the show today, and thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, here on Cold Red, we usually have guests with backgrounds in law enforcement. But, David, you have a unique story. Uh, and David was formerly an incarcerated inmate who now works with prisoners uh, as they try and reenter into society. I think for the best, best thing for us as we do this is to give you the floor, David, and explain to us, uh, to our listeners, what happened and, and what caused your incarceration? Yeah, I mean, my incarceration is not a, a typical story that you would read in the newspaper. Um, my brother and I, we grew up in a very dysfunctional home. Um, our dad and mom were really unfit, um, always arguing, fighting. Uh, one of my earliest memories was when I was five years old, my brother and I were hiding underneath our kitchen table. And my dad was threatening to kill my mom and sister with the hacksaw blade. And my grandma had to call the police and he was arrested and taken to a psych ward. And, um, yeah, just total dysfunction. Uh, my sister was kicked out of the house when she was 11 years old because of just the, the way that they couldn't get along. Um, my parents got divorced when I was nine. And that was really one of the catalysts that changed the whole trajectory of my brother and my life. And she actually got custody of us for four months and lost it because she was an unfit mother. We probably went to school eight times in that four month period and our apartment almost burned down and she lost custody. And we went and stayed with our un uncle and aunt for about six months and then went back with our dad. And it was really when we went with our dad that things spiraled um, my brother was actually kicked out, kicked out of the house because he was smoking marijuana and drinking a lot. And um, when he was kicked out, he actually went to a group home and we were in Seattle, Washington at this time. And there was a gentleman that just got out of prison in South Carolina and met the person running the group home just so he could have access to young boys. And it was then that he started molesting my brother. Um, this went on for about two months in the home, and then he forced my brother to move in with him. And probably about two months after that, he had the idea to take my brother down to California where my mom and stepdad were living and talk them into moving up to Washington. And that whole thing was just so he could have access to me. Good so boy. the first time that I saw my mom in two years, is January 1st, 1991. Um, the first three hours was great, you know, because I'm catching up seeing my mom because I hadn't seen her in so long. And then the gentleman's like, hey, let's go play hide and go seek. And as an 11 year old, that's what you do. So we went downstairs in the basement and we were playing hide and go seek. And this gentleman found me. And there wasn't any hoopla, anything. And that's when he started molesting me. And um, when he was done, he told me that if I ever told anybody, he would kill my family and me. And so that, you know, just changed the whole thought process I had about everything that was going on. And it was really one thing I talk about is that 
the trauma that I endured and the abuse, I had to create these different masks to survive. So I had one mask when I was at church. I had one mask when I was at school. I had one mask when I was on the football field. And so this abuse went on for eight years and it, um, it just got worse and worse towards the end. And, um, he had tried to kill me and my brother numerous times. Um, we had ended up going from Washington to California to Nevada to Louisiana, and then finally ended up in Alabama in 1999. And um, this gentleman, he would stand outside where my brother and I were working um, and just watching what we were doing. And if we were flirting with the waitress, if we were flirting with a customer, when we got home, we got the crap beat out of us, you know. And I actually... I look so forward to going work it to every day because it was like an escape. You know, I was, I, I was thinking the other day, I, I kind of felt like Cinderella, you know, where every day I got to go to the ball and the ball was going to work because I had freedom, you know, and um, I live vicariously through my customers because no one knew what my brother and I had to experience when we went back to to that apartment and um in june of 1999 it was a monday night um we got home and the an irrational decision was made and we took the gentleman's life and um a lot of times you know people ask me how could you do something like that and i'm like in psychology you know it's seeing red it's a point where you just are filled with so much rage and hatred and anger anger and animosity and that's how the murder happened and um it took him four months to find the body you know and that was some of the hardest time of my life because here it is i was living with the fact that i had taken somebody's life and i mean i was high i was drunk i was higher drunk just to get through that whole time you know um dave if you could you know, you're at this you, this time, you're 19 years old, correct? Yes. When the murder and, happened, I was 19. And how old was your brother? Uh, he was 22. All right. So you, I just want to take a step back, you know, because I know our listeners are thinking, um, how did this individual uh, get you or force your brother to go and live with him? How did he do that? What was, what was used to, to, to make that happen? It was the manipulation and the threats of killing them, killing my brother, killing myself, you know, and just um, and, and when we were both there, too, he actually pitted us against each other so we wouldn't come together. And um, that was just his manipulation and his tactics to keep control, you know, um, something that I never really thought about until I was actually at my pardon hearing in 2021 was one of the people on the pardon board actually said, would you consider this like a domestic violence situation? You know? And I'm like, I never thought of it in that way, you know, but in actuality, you know, if you look at all the components, you know, it had all the components of like a domestic violence situation, even though we weren't in the relationship willingly. You know, um, and I know you want to say something here, Jim. I just want to go here real quick. You know, you said it was a Monday night and uh, you came home from work and you and your brother made a decision uh, that you were going to end this. Did it just happen all of a sudden or was there talk between you and your brother about how you were going to make this end? It, things like this in, in, in my, my line of work never happen on a whim. There's usually... There's usually progression, especially you said everything was building up in you and building up in your brother over time, what this individual was doing. But you're 19, your brother's 22. You guys in your own right are men. So how is it that this individual had such a stronghold on you at that time as well? It was still the manipulation, you know, and um, just the the threats of killing us. You know, there was a situation in um, Louisiana when we were working. All three of us were working at a restaurant there. Um, I had a four top. Um, There's three young ladies and a guy, and I was flirting with the girls. 
and I was going into the restroom to count my tips um, and use the restroom. And when I went in, he came in, he grabbed me by the neck and started choking me, pushed me against the paper towel dispenser. And the next thing I know is he's punching me to bring me back to consciousness. And I mean, it's situations like that where I knew that he would bring those threats to reality where he would kill us. Um, and it was just those constant things where he would manipulate us, you know, and keep us apart, you know, where we wouldn't come together because he knew that if we came together, that we'd be able to overpower him. Um, the night of the murder, I mean, both of us had been drinking. I don't know how much my brother had drank when I got home, but I had two drinks and my drinks were like 95% vodka and just a little bit of uh, Coke so it wouldn't burn. And that was my coping mechanism to, to deal with the abuse and deal with whatever was going to happen that night. You're your abuser. Um, and you mentioned that he at one time was in prison, correct? Yes. What was he what was he in prison for? He never really told us what he was in prison for, and we never really asked. It was just something that he used kind of to continue to, to keep that fear in us. Did you ever find out afterwards what would his background was about uh, in reference to him, you know, how he was able to maintain that control over you? No, we never did. Um, when we... Um, when we pled out to the offense, his um, father, his adopted father was there um, when we were signing the plea deal. And it just seemed like he knew what Ray was about and he wasn't sad. He, he, he just accepted the fact that he was gone. You know, it wasn't a, a, a typical, like you lost somebody that you cared about. And that was something that was kind of shocking because I thought that there might have been some tears, might have been some more feelings shown. But I, I really believe that the person knew what the abuser was like. You know, there's an ongoing uh, question of life imitating art or art imitating life. David, I'm not sure how much of a reader you are of contemporary novels. I just finished reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsover. And I'm familiar with uh, Where the Crawl Dads Sing by Delia Owens. Um, it almost sounds like your story could be a combination of, of those two. Um, people growing up, in some case, rural, um, but certainly in a dysfunctional sort of family situation where parents come and go and boyfriends and, and, and exes and mothers. You don't meet your mother or grandmother till later in life. And uh, it, uh, unfortunately for you, I wonder how many if some of these authors have read your story in the media and then kind of then built their little uh, novels about it uh, and around it. So, uh, so I, I feel for you in that regard. And uh, you weren't asked to be born into this, as you described it, dysfunctional family that you were. And then this guy comes into your life at about 11 years of age, if I heard you right. And it seems like his grooming process was basically within a few hours, take you downstairs and scare the shit out of you basically say he's going to kill you if you tell anyone what's been going on. So uh, sometimes grooming will go on for months, even a year or two with certain types of these molesters, these offenders. But this guy, uh, he didn't waste any time at all. He put the fear of God, if not the fear of death into you. And uh, and that's how he got his way with you and obviously his brother. Uh, not all that unusual. Uh, Ray, I know you know this. We've seen other situations mm -hmm. like this, but... Uh, but this guy didn't waste any time. He got uh, he got right to business, and unfortunately, uh, you and your brother had to pay a long term price there. May I ask? We don't have to get graphic here, but I'm sure it's a matter of public record. Um, what was your method of operations, your mo, in terms of taking him out? Um, I mean, we that used night. knives. Okay. Okay, um, and we can leave it at that. You said you used a knife. Is that right? Yeah. So after you were done, um, was there any thought about what are we going to do? What do we do? I mean, did you guys talk about this before you did it? 
Or is no, it... I mean, we we really didn't have any conversation or anything about what we were going to do. And, I mean, everything that happened was just spon- spontaneous, you know. And um, even when the, the murder actually happened, I didn't even think anything was going to happen. But, like I said, I mean, it was just, I was just filled with all that rage and hatred and animosity. And that's when the, the murder happened. And um, we didn't have a core or anything, so we couldn't really dispose of the body. So we had just buried it in the backyard, buried him in the backyard with uh, the everything that we cleaned up. So with that, there's a period of time, you said like four months, right? That's yeah. to, by the time they find him, what's going on um, in that time period with you and your brother? Uh, is there questions coming at you? You were staying in his house, correct? No, I mean it. It wasn't really his house at this. It, it was an apartment that we were renting in this house that had three apartments. So we had the back apartment. Um, in the place we were, Jasper, Alabama, we had just moved there like nine months previously. So really, none of us had made any roots. Uh, my brother and I probably knew more people there because we worked at the the local um, Shoney's. Um, people had asked where he went. You know, we had told everybody he just packed up and went back up to Ohio because that's where he was from. And so um, with us not being from the area and not really having roots and people really worried about him, there wasn't a whole, a whole lot of hoopla and like investigation into where he went. And probably a month, I mean, probably a week after the murder, my brother actually left the area because he met a, um, him and one of the girls, one of the waitresses, uh, decided to leave together. When you, when you, uh, committed the act and now you're disposing of this individual, were you concerned because you're in an apartment and I'm sure that down in Alabama, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what the, what the uh, what the the land looks like, but are there people on top of you? Is there people right next to you? Were you uh, concerned about being discovered? So uh, it was it was a house. It was okay. a house that was turned into an apartment, and so we had the back, okay. like room, uh, living room, dining room, and and room. So and the houses next door were still a ways away, so. Um, we really weren't too concerned with that. And it was like two in the morning when we were out there. So, um, there, there was some concern as far as somebody coming out and seeing something, but we didn't feel like, um, anybody would because it was two in the morning. So what, what transpires in those days, what's going through your mind? You're going to work every day and everything, you go right back to normal. Is there any behavior on your end? Where you're kind of on edge? Do, do people see any changes in you? Um, I mean, I think the the change that people saw in me was that I could now be the 19 year old that I was supposed to be. I, yeah. I wasn't, you know, on edge all the time. I was able to do stuff. I was able to go out with them and party and do things like that where I wasn't before, where all I did was come in and I worked and went home. So now they they got to experience David, you know, not the shell that just went to work and came home, you know, and experienced the abuse. So, uh, I mean, it was kind of like the... I viewed it where the motto sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I viewed that that's what my life was, you know, where I was actually able to be this 19-year-old, you know, like other 19-year-olds. In Alabama. Interesting. Did um, did your uh, – um, this? you called him a gentleman. I'm not going to use that word because it doesn't sound like one to me. But he was obviously having sexual uh, – interactions with you and your brother but was he covering his tracks like dating women would he ever spend time i think in the early days there was a when you first met him but how about when you finally moved to alabama was there like a girlfriend he'd keep on the side or just strictly you guys there were here and there i mean that's actually he he would pick some 
like overweight people that really weren't getting a lot of attention and stuff like that. And so he would use them and manipulate them in the same way. Um, that's how we were actually going from Louisiana to, uh, we were actually going from Louisiana up to Ohio and we got stranded in Birmingham and then moved to Jasper. And, um, that's what was happening. You know, he had met this girl at the bowling alley that we were working at. Um, we had two jobs. We were working at the city of Kenner in Louisiana and a bowling alley. And he met this heavier woman that really wasn't getting a lot of interest from guys and just manipulated her, you know? And so he would always find individuals that had low, very low self-esteem and that he could play his mind games with and manipulate. Sounds like a classic uh, psychopath manipulator, narcissist, um, that doesn't care about anyone else and lies. And of course a con man. So uh, I'm not sure if he's ever diagnosed as such, but <clears throat> he certainly comes across that way. And I ask you those questions because for someone out there today, these guys still exist and they're out there and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're abusing young boys or young girls. And then they have these, what do they call them? Beards. If they pretend it's a woman that's kind of in their life, but that's really just a front, a facade to keep having their young boys. He's obviously a, uh, a, uh, well, a pedophile is a little bit younger, but he didn't actually stay at a certain age. He, as you aged, he s still molested you. Correct. Yeah. And he, some of these, uh, some of these people are preferential of offenders where they only want kids like 11 to 13 years old. Then once the kids get older, they're, they're bored with that and they move on to other 11 or 13 year olds. But these, this guy had access to you and uh, in the worst of ways. And, uh, and, and you had to, of course, live with that. And that became a part of your normal in a way. I hate to use that term, but like you said, when he was finally gone after the murder, you could kind of buy, kind of finally be yourself for the first time, the good and the bad of that. And, uh, and in a way that must've been the shackles were off you for the first time in, in a, almost a decade until yes, they came back but, on you four months later. But I mean, even with that four month period, you know, it, it still felt like I was in a prison because I was a prison in my own mind because I had taken somebody's life. And um, whenever there'd be times where we drive by the, this house, you know, and I would like, instinctively just like try to see if I could look behind, you know, I know I couldn't see all the way back to where the body was buried, but it was just that instant, like, has anybody found the body, you know? I think both Ray and I want to move on to the next, I know you divided your life into like eight stages or phases, if I read that right. But Jim, I, before, Jim, before you go there, I want to just hit one more thing, if it's okay. Uh, Dave, so did I. So. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jim, I didn't interrupt you. But Dave, when, um, this four months is going on in that four months you have a pretty good pretty good story here yeah this guy he just he was transient he went back to ohio where he was from and uh, your brother took off and he was gone for a while and you're just going to work what attracted the police to you about this missing person that was my question <laughs> great well, minds think I alike mean, go it, it was where the, the body was found and everything. And that's, we were the last residents back there. And so that's why, um, on October 29th, 1999, it was a Friday night at nine o'clock when they came in and, and wanted to talk to me about the body, um, uh, that they found. And, um, at first I was just like doing some small talk and everything. And, um, they interrogated me for about four hours that first night and I, I partially confessed to it. Um, and then I was taken to the county jail, Walker County Jail, and booked in on a murder charge. And um, I had just turned 20, like 24 days previously. So that was really hard to, to think that here I am 20 years old. And in Alabama, I know that they're really good at giving the death penalty in life without parole. And that's really what I thought I was going to get. So that first weekend I was incarcerated, I was just crying myself to sleep because I thought that I was going to get the death penalty and the um, 
the way that Alabama executed people was with the electric chair and they had a nickname for it called yellow mama. And so that's what I thought was going to happen. Well, how did they, how did they come to go into the backyard where you bent, where you buried this person and find him? What led him there? Do you know? Well, this, uh, so I really don't talk about this. This is going to be in the book that I'm writing. So, I mean, that this is a, a part. Okay. So people will have to read the book to really see how the body was found. Okay. All right. That's, fair that's, enough. That's fair. I like that. I like that. So you go, you go to jail. So tell us about, um, tell us about that trial phase. How does that come? Do you, do you uh, admit to it? Do you plead to it? Or do you go through a trial? Yes, so I was taken back to the the city jail for more questioning on November first, nineteen November first, nineteen ninety nine, and I was sat in an interrogation room for seven hours by myself. Um, they gave me two packs of cigarettes, which probably lasted twenty five minutes. Oh boy! And I only needed I only needed one lighter, uh, one light, and I smoked the two packs just like that, you know, and I hadn't smoked all weekend, you know, and just the stress uh, and just being in this situation. Um, and finally, after seven hours, you know, I had a lot of time to think. I was thinking about the abuse. I was thinking about the murder. I was thinking about everything that transpired. And I finally called the detective in and I confessed. I, I told him everything that happened. And that was a big weight that was taken off my chest because here's the first time that I'd ever told anybody about the abuse. Here's the first time that I'd really told anybody about the murder. And it was so freeing and relieving. And they came in, they videotaped it. Um, he handcuffed me, took me down to his car. We were heading back to the county jail. I'm asking him, am I going to get the death winner? Am I going to get life without parole? And he turns to me, he's like, do you believe in God? I'm like, am I going to get the death penalty life without parole? And he's like, do you believe in God? I'm like, am I going to get the death penalty life without parole? He's like, do you believe in God? And I, I finally told him, I'm like, yeah, I believe in God. And he's like, you need to seek him now. And that conversation just changed the whole trajectory of my life because it was then I, I went back, got a New Testament Bible from the, the jailer and read in Revelations and got to Revelations 3.20 that says, behold, I send at the door and knock, if anyone opens the door and allows me to come in, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. And I just cried out to God and this peace came over me. And I, I knew that the doors weren't going to open right there, but I, I knew that things were going to be okay. Um, my brother and I in Walker County, Alabama, um, they don't have public defenders, which is horrible. So um, there's only five counties in Alabama that have public defenders. The other counties, um, you have court-appointed lawyers. So these are defense attorneys that have to do a certain amount of court-appointed cases a year. Um, so we got two court-appointed lawyers that were really pitiful. They didn't want to do anything for us. Um, Later on, when Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative started working with us, they looked in our cases and they found so many um, discrepancies and reasons that um, there could have been appeals for inefficient counsel. But because of the um, the time limit, we couldn't appeal it. Um, but they came to us and they the the lawyers told us the only thing that they would the DA would offer is a 25 year plea deal. Um, we'd already confessed to it, so we knew that we couldn't take it to trial because we'd be found guilty. Um, there was one thing that I found in the law books about um, this thing called youthful offender status in Alabama. So if you're under 21 and you can commit commit an offense, you can apply for this status. And um, so I asked my lawyer about it. He's like, oh, they're not going to give it to me. I'm like, are you still going to put me in for it? He's like, no, they're not going to put you in for it. They're not going to give it to you. So for like four months, I had to go back and forth forth with him just to see if he would put me in for this um, youthful offender status. Finally, he's like, yes, I'll put you in. So I went before the judge. The judge denied the motion. And then he laughed <laughs> and he said, rehabilitation is a 70 year old joke. 
And I was like, wow, this is the judge who is supposed to technically believe that prisons are about corrections and rehabilitation, saying that they're not. So I knew we were pretty much in trouble then. Was you didn't exactly have something. Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say, you didn't exactly have Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird as your attorney. So uh, in a small southern town, and that's, uh, that's sad to hear there. But yeah, I think, Ray, and we're probably thinking the same way. How did your, your brother, was he have to be extradited from Ohio, or how did he get brought back into the, into the scene? So my brother, was he didn't go to Ohio. My brother ended up being in Florida, and so oh, okay. they extradited him from Florida. Um, they got arrested him like three weeks after I was arrested. And the, the thing that let them know that we were telling the – the truth is I hadn't talked to my brother since he left. So it had been about four months that I had seen or talked to my brother. And when he was arrested in Florida, our testimonies were a hundred percent alike. So it wasn't the point where I was able to call him and be like, Hey, I'm in the County jail. This is what you need to tell them. It's like, no, our testimonies are exactly alike because we couldn't, talk plus it was 99 you know we didn't have cell phones and things like that that's true ray if you and i were independently interviewing these both brothers we'd be pretty convinced that uh they were telling the truth if we could confirm they haven't been in touch with each other so uh uh that would add a lot to uh the interview uh aspects of the whole thing yeah i'm a little bothered i'm a little bothered by the judge um that he had initially making that statement um you know they're supposed to be impartial and uh they're supposed to judge everything on its merits based upon the law and uh he didn't he didn't appear to do that maybe he was much was he much older a much older yeah, he kid? was he was about 75 and i mean there there were all kinds of rumors about things that was going on too, but you know, that's, that's probably a whole nother episode and everything. Well, we'd love to have you back. So, I mean, if you want to talk about something like that, that'd be great. When the Dave. book comes out, when the book comes out. Exactly. <laughs> when the book comes out, um, we'll definitely bring you back. But a, another thing that was really baffling about, like when my lawyer came up to me and was like, Hey, you know, the only thing they're going to offer you is 25 year sentence is he told me, he's like, Hey, if you have to do all 25 years, you'll just be a young 45 when you get out. <laughs> and oh, I'm just yeah. like, I was 21 years old when he told me that. It's yeah. like, I'm 44 right now. I just to think that, I mean, I would still be in prison until October 27, 2024, if I didn't make parole and get yeah. out when I did. It, it's just like baffling to just sit there and just think about that comment and what he said. You know, um, there's a lot of stories about uh, prison life and uh, what it's like. And nobody really, even though Jim and I worked uh, numerous cases, have been in hundreds of prisons throughout our career, interviewing people and, and doing different things. It's not the same thing as living there. What was it like for a young man of your age to be uh, in a in a setting like that, tell our listeners what it was like to be in prison. Well, I mean, I was in a couple different prisons. So um, when we first went in, we went down to Kilby Correctional Facility. So that was the intake prison. And um, what's very interesting about that is we were in quarantine for three days and really what the COs or some of the COs, what they wanted to do was just instill this, like this unrealistic fear in you. Um, there was this 16 year old kid that um, got two 20 year sentences for robbery. And the CO got in his face and was just yelling at him and telling him that he's not supposed to be in prison. He's supposed to be at home with his mom and this and that, you know, and this kid was just crying there, you know, and then another day they were coming in for count time and he's like, oh yeah, we got somebody in here murdering the first, you know, 21 year old. And I know that he was talking about me. So 
it it was definitely interesting just to see how some of these CEOs interacted. Um, correctional officers, just, by the way, for our yeah, correctional officers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually just shaved my head like two or three days before I went down to prison, and there was actually this black correctional officer that grabbed me. Um, by this shirt and just pushed me up against the wall. He's like, you're a skinhead, you're a skinhead, you're a racist. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just shaved my head. He's like, I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be watching you. And he like watched me for like three or four days, you know, to see how I acted, you know, and if I, I was racist, you know, and he actually apologized later because he saw that I wasn't. But um, in, in prison, you know, one thing that really surprised me especially in prisons in Alabama is about like the gangs. Um, So you, you had your typical typical gangs, like your crip, your folk, your insane gangs, the disciples, your, there's like 20 different gangs there in Alabama. Then you had your Aryan nation and your Southern brotherhood. But the thing that really baffled me about Alabama is that, individuals would ride with their city over their gang. So that was something that really baffled me because I thought that if you had a crip from Huntsville, Montgomery, and Birmingham, that all the crips would ride together, but they would actually ride with their city over their gang. So that was something that really baffled me. Um. The correction officers uh, are, are definitely very interesting. I always tell people that, in my opinion, there's three di- three different types of corrections officers. You have your by the books corrections officer. This is the one that you know in Alabama. My I, I could get written up because my hair was too long right now. So my hair is probably about two and a half inches. You'd have to only have it like a, a inch and a half, or else you could get written up. But you respected these correction officers because they're by the books. They don't change. Every day, Monday through Friday, they're the same thing. You know what to expect. Then you have your correction officer that is like an incarcerated person. They're just sitting around playing dominoes. At times, they're fellow gang members, stuff like that. And they're just there chilling, doing eight hours. But then you have your wishy-washy CO. Correction officer, this is the one that on Monday will bring in a cell phone to you, get $500 from your girlfriend. But on Friday, they're coming down to shake you down and going to write you up because they found you with the cell phone. And so there's a lot that you have to navigate. You know, you have to navigate corrections officers. You know, you have to navigate the people that you're doing time with. Um, a lot of the prisons I was at, there were they were dorms instead of cells. Um, so these dorms were actually created to house like 60 people, but we had 136 people living in these areas. Um, five toilets, seven showers. So there's really no free space. There's really, you're constantly right next to somebody. Um, But what's very interesting is it can be very lonely. You could be in the dorm with 135 people and still be alone because of whatever you're experiencing in life. You know, the the loss of family members, different things like that. while I was incarcerated, my mom, my dad, my grandma and sister all passed away. And so I I had to navigate being incarcerated, dealing with those losses, you know, and not being able to go to funerals, not being able to really correspond with my family to really know what's happening. Was there a hierarchy in prison? I mean, uh, we've always heard over the years that you're a cop killer, you're on the top shelf. But, of course, it also depends what gang you may be in. Of course, if you're a little kid rapist, you're on the bottom of the uh, of the hierarchical rung. You're, quote, unquote, a murderer. Um, I'm not sure what you're if you join any gangs at all just for self-preservation. But how did that whole sort of dynamic work out? No, I mean, I didn't join any gangs at all. Um, I, I affiliated with people, but I wasn't with any gangs. I, I, I'm a hundred percent extroverted. So I got along with everybody. Um, one thing that is really a key in prison is respect. So 
if you show respect, you'll get respect. You know, um, people knew my faith, knew what I stood for. Um, and that wasn't stuff that was challenged, you know. Um, and I played sports a lot, you know, so I was involved in a lot of different things. In Alabama, um, <laughs> the sports are like this. White folks play volleyball, black folks play basketball. And if you want to play softball, anybody can play softball. Um, and if you're a white person, if you want to play basketball, you better be good and you better be willing to take some hard fouls. Uh, I busted my eye open, busted the back of my head, lost a tooth, separated shoulder, messed up ankles and everything. But I would constantly go back out there and play, you know, and they're like, man, you are one crazy white dude, you know. But, I mean, I love playing sports, you know, and it was wonderful opportunities to just create those relationships, you know, and just to another area to gain that respect. But as far as like a hierarchy, yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy. Um, and what's always interesting about that hierarchy is like you said, you know, people who've committed murder, they're like top dogs, you know, they're at the top rung. But once everybody gets out of prison, where does that person go? They're now on the bottom of the ladder because now they're looked at as a monster. You took somebody's life. There's no way that anybody's going to look at you and, and give you any type of high standing. So it's definitely interesting the the way that that ladder changes once you get out of prison. Absolutely. You know, you were um, you mentioned somebody, uh, an attorney by the name of Brian Stevenson. Yeah, it's wow, pretty cool, huh? <laughs> yeah, just for our listeners, uh, Brian Stevenson is from Southern Delaware. He born and raised, grew up, and went to Harvard, and wound up going down to Alabama to practice uh, practice law. And tell us a little bit about what he did and how you come to meet him. Yeah, so one of the um, folks that I was incarcerated with was actually a client of Brian's, and he told him about my brother and me, and they wanted to start working with us. Um, um, as I said, they started looking into our case and really the whole meat and potatoes, you know, and then they realized that the uh, appeal time uh, had expired, so they couldn't do anything there. But what they wanted to do was help with the parole process. Um probably the second or third visit I had with Brian, he started telling me about Eastern University. So Eastern University is a Christian college outside of Philadelphia where he got his undergrad at. So he went to Eastern before he went to Harvard. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, this sounds pretty cool. And then I got some flyers from Eastern and they talked about that they had a prison ministry and a street ministry. I was like, okay, I'm sold. I want to go up there. But, you know, the, the process was going on. Um, my brother actually got out of prison in 2008. In 2009, I went up for parole, and the attorney general was trying to get reelected. And so anybody who had a violent offense or anybody who had committed a sexual offense was being set off. Um, so I was set off five years. But um, Brian and Equal Justice Initiative was able to get a two-year cut. Um, so I came up for parole in February of 2013, made it, and was released April 1st, 2013. So what is April 1st? <laughs> April we know. Fools. Tell me what happened. So in Alabama, when you make parole, you everybody leaves on Monday on parole. Uh, if you end your sentence, otherwise you leave whenever. But if you make parole, you always leave on Monday morning. So Friday, I went, I did blood work, I did paperwork, I did everything. I had every, I had all my ducks in a row. I was ready to go. 7.30 Monday morning, April 1st, I go to the shift office. I'm like, hey, David Garlock, ready to go. They're like, Garlock, your paperwork hasn't come in. You can't go home. I was like, okay. You guys know I love to joke around and play and do all that, but my freedom is not something I want to joke around about right now. They were they put this on for like 10 minutes, talking about like your paperwork hasn't come, you can't go. I'm just like, this is not cool. This is not. <laughs> and then finally they're like, okay, go get dressed and get up out of here. And as I'm walking out to go get, I'm like, how can you joke around about somebody's freedom like that? That mm -hmm. is not even cool. There are lines well, that should not be crossed, and I think that was one of them. 
even for 10 Absolutely. minutes. Well, there's another thing you did with Brian. Tell us about that. Um, you're talking about the movie? Yeah. Was that when you were still in prison or out of prison? No, that, that happened afterwards. So um, Brian Stevenson wrote a book called Just Mercy that came out in 2014. Um Pretty much the the main basis of the book is about one of his cases, uh, Walter McMillian, who was a gentleman in um, Alabama that was put on death row for committing a murder that he didn't commit. Um, he was accused of killing a white woman in a very um, racially motivated um, county in Alabama. And so he was on death row for six years. And Brian uh, won his case and... Um, helped get him released and then some of the other um some of his other cases are throughout the book too so in 2018 it actually became they were filming it and so michael b jordan jamie fox brie larson o'shea jackson jr and others were in it so i got a call from brian in august of 2018 it's like hey i got a pretty cool opportunity for you i'm like okay He's like, do you want to be in a movie? I'm thinking to myself, do you actually have to ask somebody if they want to be in a movie? It's just like, tell me where I need to be, what I need to be wearing and dressed up. You know, I was like, yeah, you know, I'd love that. So we went down um, September 5th of 2018 to film. So most of it was filmed in Atlanta. Um, it was filmed in Tyler Parish Studios or where we filmed was at the old Cobb County Jail outside of Atlanta. So we go to the, the set and everything. Uh, Brian is always about changing the narrative. And so there were four incarcerated people in this movie and Brian wanted four of his clients to play these roles instead of four actors. And so I was one of the clients chosen, but yeah, you said, wow, Fitz, but wait till this, (laughs) when we got on set, we didn't have scripted lines. Each one of us got to share our story for 18 to 20 minutes. Hmm. So the three lines I have in the movie are actually parts of my own story. And two, two things, two of the lines I've already shared in this podcast. What are they? (laughs) Um, Where the judge laughed and said rehabilitation was a 70 year old joke. And Mm -hmm. um, where my lawyer said, if I had to do all 25 years, I'll be a young 45. And then the other line was how I talked about how pitiful my court appointed lawyer was. Yeah. I can only imagine. They would be, uh, they would be money lines in a, in a, in a movie that you're describing. So uh, that that's that's an amazing story there. Uh, but while in prison, you were also in you you attained uh, further education and degrees. You were involved, of course, in a ministry. Tell us a little bit about that and what that did for you, as well as other inmates. Yeah, so I got I was able to get my GED in the county jail. Um, after my experience with God, I told myself that I was going to do the time instead of letting the time do me. And so I told myself whatever opportunities I had, I was going to take advantage of. So I got my GED in the county jail. Um, I was able to get a drafting trade through um, Wallace Community College and got a master's of theology through an unaccredited Christian college outside of Georgia. And yeah, I mean, I was involved in church and just different avenues there. Um, The I I wasn't the type of person that was just going to go around and try to convert everybody. Um, My idea of ministering to folks is just allowing conversations to happen and just to to loving on people, you know, because that's the best way. Um, I, I feel that there were too many people just trying to go out there and evangelize everybody. And I was always like, okay, God's going to open up opportunities for me to talk to people. There's going to be situations where something's going to happen and I'm going to be given that opportunity to talk to them, to encourage them, to help them in their time of need. And he he always uh, allowed those opportunities. Amazing. David, I may ask you, You're next, right? And we'll go back and forth here. He's so fascinating. Uh, For parole to be granted, usually you have to show that you have, besides you're good in, you know, uh, 
good time in prison and all that, you have to show that you have somewhere to live and perhaps a job, right? Was there a halfway house involved or basically when the day you walked that Monday, April Fool's Day, when you walked out of the, the joint, where did you go? And was there, I'm sure you still had supervision after that. You had to report to a uh, parole officer. They go by different names now. But how did that whole process work? Yeah, so I went to, uh, I went through Equal, Equal Justice Initiatives post-release education program. And so they actually had a studio apartment ready for me when I got out. Um, at that point, you know, and I think even up to this point, you really don't have to have a job because it, it's difficult um, uh, not many employers are going to say, yes, you know, this person's formerly incarcerated. Come on, let's hire you. Um, it took me a month and a half to get my first job. I mean, Burger King, Taco Bell, McDonald's, no fast food place would hire me. Mm -hmm. um, the the first job I had, I only had for one day and two hours. And it was not because anything I did. It was because when I went through the interview process, they never asked me about my felony. And the general manager had an issue with me having a violent offense. Um, and she tried to say, oh, it's company policy. So she was trying to cover her own biases up by blaming the company for having a policy. Um, mm -hmm. But a couple of days later, I got a better job working at a, a restaurant as a dishwasher. Um, uh, this gentleman had never hired anybody that was formerly incarcerated before. When I went in and talked to him, he's like, Hey, I see you have a 13 and a half year gap on your resume. Can you tell me about it? So I told him my story and he's like, well, because you were open and honest, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to start you off at $9 an hour washing dishes. And three days later I was promoted. Um, to doing soup, salad, appetizer, because he saw my work ethic. And um, this was probably, I'd say, my worst boss ever, but also a good boss. He was my worst boss ever because three out of five days a week, he's cursing me out. And I'm doing everything right. It's just his personality. He's just very high strong. He's going to curse you out just to curse you out. And I'm not talking about, like, cursing you out, like, five feet away from you. I'm talking about like one inch away from your face, spittle hitting your cheeks and everything. And so I had to treat him like a corrections officer. I'm like, yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, because I knew if I cursed him out or anything like that, I would be unemployed and it could be another couple months before I found another job. So three you know, kinds of correctional officers and three, at least three kinds of bosses, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least Jim, I agree with that. You know, David, it's it's kind of remarkable. You get out, and and the uh, the adventure you had to overcome is just, I think, is amazing. But then you go down a path where you want to work on prison reform and help uh, other people that come after you make reentry back into society. How did you come up with that? I mean, I think that's fat. That's unbelievable. How did you come up with that? Well, I mean, I didn't come up with it because, I mean, people have been doing it for a while. Um, but it, it's just what what's interesting is really the the doors that open, because when I got out of prison, um, I had actually written up a business plan to open up a home f to for kids and teens to help them get off the streets. And I was going to major in social work. Um, I kind of majored in social work, but my degree is in urban studies, focusing on criminal justice and social welfare. So it's urban studies, criminal justice and social work combined. And I never was able to do that type of work, but I got involved with reentry work. I got involved with policy work. And it's so amazing, you know, for somebody who's formerly incarcerated to give back and to um, reach our hand back and to show other men and women what is possible. I mean, I've been out of prison over 10 years now. Um, and it's so powerful when these individuals can see what I've been able to achieve in that 10 years. Um, I am blessed with the opportunity to co-teach a class in prison at a prison here in Pennsylvania through Eastern University's prison education program. And just going in every Thursday and seeing these men, you know, and pouring into them, seeing their hunger for this education is so powerful. But another thing is 
I've told them, I'm like, okay, you see where I am at? I want you to be here when you get out, you know, and it's about just encouraging them and letting them know what is possible. You know, David, I, I know a few people that you may have crossed paths with. Uh, one guy is Mark Howard. He, he's a law, a law professor at Georgetown University, and he does some work with uh, prison uh, outreach. And he actually convinced my then fiance, she's now my wife, who was a professor at uh, uh, Georgetown University to go into a prison in Maryland and, and teach a course. And she was nervous as all heck. And she has these visions of these old 1940s and 1950s prison where she'd be walking down a hallway and the guys are reaching out and catcalling her. But uh, she finally had a, she taught linguistics, you know, language, the science of language. And she said it was one of the best classes, best students she's ever had because they had like homework to do beforehand and, um, and readings to do. And they came in and asked some of the most intelligent questions. And she was very impressed with them. There were certain rules they gave her. She had to dress in very modestly, you know, pants, yeah. things like that. But one of her students was Willie Horton. He was the guy, mm-hmm. uh, if you remember from, I think, the Dukakis campaign in 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made an ad about him in New Hampshire, whatever. And uh, he was one of her students. But he asked some good questions, she said. And I think you also have an affiliation with Hofstra University, right? Or at least you've been there. Yeah, I, I went there in 2018 mm-hmm. and spoke at Hofstra, um, a couple different classes and event. Um, so I've spoken about 60 universities across the country. Um, and it's an amazing opportunity to go into universities, to to share my story, to to talk from not only the lived experience, but also the experience of somebody who has a criminal justice degree, but who's also worked in reentry and policy. And so um, one thing that, uh, one presentation that I created recently, um, earlier this year was what your textbooks don't teach you prison reentry and policy. And so I love teaching that class to allow these students to get a holistic view and to know, you know, that your books are teaching you good things, but these are things that you need to know that your books aren't teaching you. Yeah, that's true. I came across uh, one last reference, Marty Tankliffe. Have you met him? He's a lawyer. I haven't. I haven't met him in person where where we follow each other on social medias. I've never met Mark in person either, but we follow each other on social media. And what's always amazing is, you know, just the the connections that you can make via LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. And then always when you're able to meet people in person, it just takes it to another level. Like last week I was at... um, the American Society of Criminology. So I go to um, some of the criminal justice um, conferences um, because that's really what I'm passionate about. And um, I was actually able to be on one of the panels where we were talking about um, the trauma-informed parole and probation we're working on here in PA. And so it's great to finally connect with some of the professors that I've been following for years too. Just just to add, uh, Marty Tankliff was accused in the late 1980s in, I believe it was Suffolk County, New York, of killing both his parents. He was 17, put in prison for about 17 years, and then his conviction was overturned. A lot of malfeasance on the part of some uh, people in the in the system there. But uh, a book was called A Criminal Injustice, written about his whole case, and it's it's fascinating. He got his law, well, he got his undergrad degree while in prison, got his law degree afterwards, and now he works full-time on a uh, prison exonerees uh, cases. So uh, I, I, I consider Marty a friend and we've done some some uh, some teaching and things like that together. So uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's an amazing program out there that folks like you are doing. Um, and uh, there are people that they make one mistake and they deserve to have a second chance. Uh, Ray, we both put guys in prison ourselves, but we yeah. maybe stayed in touch with them. They may have been bad yeah, guys early on. But if you monitor their activities, whatever, and uh, they can get out and they and they lead, lead the straight and narrow. Not easy, but they can do it. David, obviously, a lot of mitigating circumstances with you. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, really uh, your conviction yeah. wasn't overturned. You admitted what you did. But again, this guy was abusing you for a substantial portion of your life. And to me, it qualifies almost for self-defense there. Yeah, and just think about that, you know, um, we were charged with murder. What they could have charged us with was either manslaughter, which would have been two to 20 in a class B felony, 
or really if you look at the the law book they could have easily charged us with justifiable homicide which would have been a class c felony and carried a one to ten year sentence we would have been eligible for work release and other things like that where with a class a felony we would never work you know i i think it's important as we kind of wrap this up david is um you know and someone that's been through what you've been through you're a world of knowledge. If you had to give any advice to uh, other victims of abuse, um, what would you what would you say to them? Um, one of the main things is is if it's in a point where it's happening now, tell somebody. Um, find something, find somebody that you trust and are comfortable with and share it, you know, because that's the, the first step to healing. Um, other individuals, you know, this is a journey, you know, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, but healing is possible. Um, I, everyone knows the saying hurt people, hurt people, but I, I take it to the next level and I say helped people help people and healed people heal people. Um, I, I love being able to share my story because so many people come up to me afterwards and talk about their own abuse. So um, being able to share your story is going to get to the point where you're able to continue to take power over what happened to you. And then you really get to define how your past is used in your life. But you sharing that will give hope and encouragement and empower other people. I mean, that's great advice, David, for victims, whether they're current victims or whether they've been victims in the past. Uh, I think those words uh, carry a lot of weight. And, and I hope that the people that listen to this, which, which are many, that if they are victims of abuse, that they take heed to what you just stated. And, uh, and I hope that they're able to turn their life around the way you have, uh, which the adversity you faced is, is amazing, uh, what you've been able to accomplish. And you should be congratulated for that. Because, I mean, wall after wall, barrier after barrier, you would just not take no for an answer. And you just kept striving. And um, now the shoe's on the other foot and you're turning around and you're helping those that are less fortunate than you. And you're opening the door for so many people that you don't even know about. And I think that's what the great thing is about. I mean, Jim is so right. Everybody, everybody deserves a second chance. You know, I don't know about a third, but at least a second, at least a second chance. I, I kind of want to wrap this up here. I know you have a book coming out. Do you have a date on when that book's coming out? Um, I don't have a date yet. I was actually just talking with somebody the other day. So we're just in the initial process. So it's not okay. uh, probably like two years. Okay. How about any websites that our listeners could go to? Um, so my website is davidlgarlock.com. Um uh, they they could go to my website, see different places. I, I try to keep that updated as far as the different speaking engagements that I'm doing. I actually just um, solidified a thing where I'm actually going to be a keynote at a social work conference in Alabama in February. And so um, I'll be back at down in Texas, speaking at University of Texas, Dallas, and some schools down there. So um, one thing I try to do is keep... Um, where I'm speaking on my website. So if people are all over the country, they can keep an eye out there. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook at David Lee Garlock. Um, I love to connect with people, answer questions. I try to be an open book, you know, and. That's great. David, last question. Um, I'm sure you've caught up on some movies in the last decade or so since you've been out. Can you can you offer our uh, advice to our listeners and our audience? What's the best prison movie? What's the worst prison movie? I definitely tell people to watch Just Mercy um, because mm. of just how powerful that story is and it how is. it's going to frustrate you. It's going to make you angry. It's going to make you want to throw your remote at the the TV. But then it's going to give you hope. You know that there is a, a better way. That there is a chance that things are going to get better. Um, I mean, when you think about worse movies, I mean, 
you think about stuff like the longest yard and yeah, things yeah. like that that are so hilarious they're more funny than anything um i like talking more about like tv shows like orange is the new black you know mm. up until the fifth season there's a lot of um, i agree uh, stuff that could happen but after that fifth season it goes like really hollywood um one show that i loved um is uh australian version called wentworth it's also on netflix mm-hmm. um it has eight seasons it's really good it's more of a psychological um type show but if somebody really wants to see what prison's like they need to watch the old tv show oz Oh. That used to be on HBO. It's back on HBO Max now, and you can find some of the episodes on YouTube. But that is probably the most realistic show um, that's out there. Is there anything that you would like to add, Dave, uh, to our listeners before we sign off here? Is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, just don't label people by um whatever they went to prison for just get to know the person you know um because look at my story you know if you just look at the fact that i committed a murder you could judge me and and base your whole opinion on an act that i committed um brian stevenson always says you're not as bad as worse than you've ever done so i think that's how we have to look at people you know we have to say okay yes you did something why did you do it but also who are you today and I mean, I, I always tell people, my past doesn't define me. It's educated me. It's prepared me to, to be who I am today and do what I do. What defines me is what I do today and what I do tomorrow. That's I don't think it gets better than that to close it out, Ray. I agree with you, Jim. May I do so? Absolutely, sir. David, uh, thank you so much. I think your website, davidlgarlock.com, did I get that right? Yeah, folks, yes, check sir. it out for, uh, I think this will be a great speaker at your different conferences, uh, whatever they may be across uh, the Fruited Plains, as they say. But uh, but everybody else, again, thanks for uh, watching or listening to uh, Cold Red. Check us out on coldredpodcast.com. Follow us on social media, subscribe, all those kind of fun things. And we will back be back before very long. Thank you, guys. Right, take care, everyone. All right, bye-bye. Bye.